The Scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be the head over everything for the church, which is the body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with the 11th verse. We're talking about the church today. Uh, the term is this. It's called ecclesiology, which means study of the church. The ecclesia, uh, which in the Greek means the called out ones or the assembly. And uh, as we look at it this morning uh, in the book of Revelation, we'll notice later that a lampstand is often used as a picture of the church. It's the uh, picture or the metaphor that Jesus uses. And the purpose of the lampstand was to provide light. You know, today... We have uh, fluorescent lights, but back then they didn't have those. So if they came into a building like this, uh, they would have a lampstand. They would usually have normal, uh, uh, normally they would have numerous uh, lampstands. This particular one, of course, is a menorah, but they would use these. And uh, when Jesus is speaking in Revelations 2 and 3 about a lampstand, he's using this analogy. And he says, uh, if you do not continue to follow me, if you don't continue uh, to love me, if you don't continue uh, to be obedient to the command and the mission I've given you, I will remove your lampstand. I will take the light away. You are to be the light of the world. Uh, you are to be a light that so shines before men that they may see my good works and glorify the Father in heaven. It's the purpose of a lampstand. And that's what Jesus refers to the churches as a lampstand. Now, there's two types of churches, of course. The first one would be the universal church, the church universal, and that is uh, characteristic of all believers. So those who have passed away, those who are of other denominations, those who call Jesus Lord and He is their Savior, that would be the universal church. Uh, every believer is a part of the church in that nature. And First uh, Corinthians chapter 12 talks about uh, one body, one spirit, the universal church. But then there's also the local church. Uh, there are numerous instances of the local church. As a matter of fact, the, uh, in the Bible, 115 different times a church is referred to. Uh, we know that uh, the church in Revelation, the seven churches there, we know this right here was the church uh, of Ephesus. And there are actually about 115 references to the church. Nearly 100 of those are in reference to the local church. So we know that there was a local church established. We know Paul is speaking to the local church of Ephesus here, the Ephesian church. <clears throat> Excuse me. Of course, Paul goes on to plant numerous other churches. As a matter of fact, out of the church of Ephesus, we'll see six more churches uh, planted. We see Paul planting out of Antioch. He continually plants churches. And this, of course, is a part of our DNA. This is a part of our dream. Our dream as a church and our vision as a church is not to become a megachurch. There's nothing wrong with that. Megachurches are great places. Nothing wrong with that at all. But God has called us to plant churches and to begin additional churches and more churches. And, of course, we've already supported three church plants uh, out of our church here. And we want to continue that in the days ahead. And I believe there's definitely a, a strong biblical principle for church planting. But many people don't see it that way. Many people see church and they look at church from their own perspective and they have a different desire out of church more than uh, what we'll see today and as we look at the purposes of the church. And why is that? Well, sometimes it's just out of unbelief. Uh, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that the man without the Spirit does not uh, accept the things of the Spirit 
of God. So sometimes it's an act of unbelief. Sometimes it's simply ignorance. They, they don't know better. They grew up in church, and, and in their estimation, church is this. It's a place uh, to come and sing songs and put some coin in the offering plate and go off and check it and think we did something for God. Other people, it's just a selfish pride issue. As we look in the book of Jude, there were some men there who just wanted to be in charge. He wanted to be in control, and they kind of took, took it ahead, and they didn't have anything to do with the Spirit of Christ. And then lastly, sometimes it's just our failure to mature. We see it as a place that's all about us as opposed to all about Him. You know, that kind of reminds me of, of this. Does anybody know what this is? You can shout it out loud. A Twinkie. A Twinkie. I... Unfortunately, I used to eat these uh, when I was a child. I, I don't know what I was thinking, uh, but Twinkies. Now, it's interesting because this is uh, supposedly a type of cake, and, uh, but if you take a real cake, if you were to make one, if my wife was to make one or my mother, they would use six, seven, maybe eight ingredients, and they would use things like butter and flour and milk and eggs, but none of those are in here, <laughs> unfortunately. But do you know how many, six, seven, eight items in a cake? You know how many, how many uh, chemicals are, or excuse me, you know how many items are in here? 39. 39 items in here. There are 39 different ingredients in this Twinkie. And because see, the, the reason is, is if, I, uh, if I bake a cake, if my wife bakes a cake, and we just put those uh, somewhat wholesome I consider wholesome things like butter, eggs, and milk. And I put those in there, and I make that cake, and I set it on a shelf. Well, in a couple of days, things are going to start going bad. In a couple of weeks, it's gone and done for. But this right here, I can put that on there, and next year I can come back, and it'll look just like this. Matter of fact, if nobody eats this, it'll probably outlive you, okay? And it'll look the same way because it has 39 different ingredients Ingredients like these, it has the ingredient um, like cellulose gum and sodium sterile and, and uh, also these kind of ingredients, corn dextrin, which is used on the back of postage stamps. It also has ferrous sulfate, which is used as a disinfectant and weed killer. It also has calcium sulfate, uh, which is used in plaster pairs. As a matter of fact, it's the main ingredient. And there are a lot of others in there. And yeah, you can eat them, and I guess it won't kill you because it didn't kill me, but that really wasn't what it was intended to be. It wasn't really intended to go in your body, and, and nourishment, I think, would be too strong a word. But why do people eat Twinkies? Well, one, they've been conditioned. I, I remember I used to love them, and now I'm just kind of grossed out by them, but they've been conditioned because they're easy. I can pick it up off the shelf. Um, it'll last forever, and it's got a neat car on the front of it, a neat package on it. But and, and it's just easy. But it really wasn't meant to be eaten and consumed. That's not really what those things were originally intended for. You know, the church is the same way. There are a lot of reasons that people look at the church. It's supposed to help me when I need help. It's supposed to uh, do some, some good things uh, for the community. And those are all things that we hope that, that happen. But really, those are things that happen are supposed to happen through believers, through us individual, individually as Christians. When we come here, it's for this purpose. Let's turn in Philippians, excuse me, in Ephesians chapter four, and let's see what the Bible has to tell us about the purpose of church. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 16. And Paul starts off here and he talks about some of the gifting and some of the positions of the church. And we're going to go through those one by one. It was He who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors, and some to be teachers. Now, the first one He talks about there are apostles. And there's two different definitions for apostles. First definition, and you've probably heard before, of those who uh, were with Jesus and those who were influenced by the ministry of Jesus directly. Paul's usually included in that because he had the Damascus Road experience. And that's certainly one definition of apostles that I think is accurate. But also, apostles, sometimes we find people like Barnabas, find people like Titus, who are referred to as apostles, who we know didn't see Jesus. There's a term called, it's actually the Greek word can also be translated as messenger. As a matter of fact, they would specifically be messengers who were sent out from the church. So uh, this last hour, we had a young lady in here who were sending to Africa for two years uh, to do mission work and to work with AIDS patients. And uh, she is going to, in a sense, be an apostle. She's a messenger that we will send out and support. So would it be for church planters. So when you look at it from that perspective, that you could say that still is a gifting, still a position today, still an opportunity today. The next one would be prophets. And a lot of times this is a big discussion. Are there prophets today? Well, it depends on how you define the gift of prophecy. We know in the Old Testament uh, it was both foretelling and foretelling. Now, foretelling would be that they would they spoke truth the, the they spoke forth the truth boldly, and they would address issues of society that were immoral and that were uh, just flying in the face of God. They would directly uh, confront those issues, and we still have people that will do that today and feel called to make that their passion. But also in the Old Testament, we would see foretelling. And the question becomes, is foretelling in existence today? And let me say this, I, I don't ever want to say God can't do anything. I want to just preface uh, what we're about to look at without saying, you know what, if God so and chooses to give someone uh, a prophecy in the sense of there are foretelling the future for the body of Christ or for an individual, he can certainly do that, certainly within his realm. But let's look at what the criteria is given in Scripture. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, it's the fifth book of the Bible. Uh, and if you notice there... I'll give you a second to turn because it's taken me a second to turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 18, beginning with verse 20. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded of him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods must be put to death. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has been spoken by the Lord? Now, You'll remember in the Old Testament time, this is how the Bible is actually being communicated. This is how the Word of God was being communicated. They didn't have it in writings, particularly in this time. And so when a prophet would speak, it would be as though God was speaking. He spoke with authority. He spoke with the words of God. But sometimes people would say that, and they wouldn't really be uh, from the Spirit of God. And, and he said, how can you know if this is truly someone who is speaking on behalf of God. He says, if what that prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. And he also says, you don't need to worry about him because often it was a prophecy of doom. And he says, don't worry about that. If they get Basically, here's the deal. If they get it wrong one time, they're not a prophet of God. 
They're not speaking on my behalf. Now, let me differentiate for just one second. It's one thing when you feel God is speaking to you and leading you in a direction. And it's one time, it's another thing even when, when um, you feel like God is leading your family and God has given you a word or a vision or whatever He's given you. But when you start to speak on behalf of God for the church, when you start to speak into other people's lives, the Bible is pretty clear on that, that you need to be right. And if you're not right, you're not speaking from God. And, and, and basically, it's 100% of the time. That's what Scripture, and you can interpret that differently, but I think it's pretty uh, black and white, pretty clear here. So, you know, that's what concerns me. And I, I won't mention a guy's name, but I'm, I'm concerned when this one gentleman continually speaks and says God told him to tell America this, and this is going to happen this year. And then three out of those five things that he said didn't happen, they come back to him and he said, well, I got two right. That's almost 500. That's pretty good in baseball. Uh, the problem is, is biblically that doesn't apply. That's great that that's good in baseball. But if we are, truly have that kind of gift of foretelling, then you're always going to be right. Uh, so you can take that up with Scripture. Uh, if I know that some, somebody's mad right now. Uh, God bless you. Uh, let's move on. And, and go on to <laughs> and go on to evangelists. What is an evangelist? Well, a lot of people think, hey, that's those are the people that go out and share the gospel. But really, uh, more scripture defines it. It is those who train others to share of their faith. It's those who inspire and encourage as well as do it themselves. It's not a specific gift that they are the only ones that do it. And then we see teachers who are of course, to teach. But then let's look at the word pastor. That word pastor uh, means shepherd. It means to protect, to lead, and provide. Uh, what it doesn't mean is uh, the guy that does all the preaching. You know, you can be a pastor and not, not preach. Did you know that? Uh, it is a gifting. It is to shepherd. It is to show the sheep where to eat and where to drink and to provide and protect. That's the main responsibility for the pastor. Now, Hey, let's just talk for a second here, if you don't mind. Uh, let's just visit for a moment here, and let me just tell you my perspective. And, and I get this from New Testament history. Do you know that the pastor was never intended uh, to be the only preacher in the service, or excuse me, the only preacher in the church? Never, never intended. Uh, we don't, ever, we don't see really any indications. Of that matter of fact, we see quite the contrary. We see that different people uh, would speak, different people would share. And there was a principal guy. There was a main elder usually. Usually, they'd start off with one. If it was a small church, he would be the elder. And then, uh, as other elders were added, they would uh, add other teachers. And and the reason I believe for that, and we don't know specifically why, but I think was so that the church would not be built on one person's personality wouldn't be built on one man. Because you know what happens? Here's what happens. If I'm the only voice you ever hear from, if I'm the only teaching that you ever receive, if I'm the only one that you listen to, you know what happens when I leave? You're probably going to leave. You know what's going to happen if I ever make a, a mistake or if I, I ever fall? You know what's going to happen? You're probably going to fall away or you're going to wander away and you're going to be devastated because you put your principal reasoning for church in an individual. I believe personally that uh, it's not really a good biblical model. Now, do I do it most of the time? Yes, I do. And can I tell you this, that some of that's going to change somewhat, and it's not because I don't want to preach. I get a real ego stroke out of this, believe it or not. Uh, but that's not a good reason to preach. Matter of fact, that's a real bad reason. I, I have to ask God to help me get over that a lot of times. And so one of the most unhealthy things we can say, and I know you've probably said this, and don't tell me that you said this, uh, but um, I, if I'd known the pastor wasn't there, I wouldn't even gone today. I knew he wasn't preaching. Every once in a while somebody say, Preacher, I just don't like it when you're not there. I just don't like it when I have to hear somebody else. I'm just used to it. You know, 
That's, that's a called immaturity. That's what it would be called. You know what I mean? When we, start, when we start becoming dependent on one person or one man or one individual to uh, sustain us, then we have fallen into that immature pattern. Let's see what is the purpose of the church. Let's read on here, and it's this in verse 12. To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. We are to prepare, that word equip, equip people to be able to read and study their Bibles, to pray, to give, to love, to forgive, to serve, to sacrifice. Secondly, we are to give them that opportunity to do that, to help them to work, to serve, to engage them. You are to be a part of the service of the church. That's why we have so many... You know, Christ didn't do this accidentally. That's why we have literally, if you, if you can believe this, nearly 200 people that serve in different capacities in this church right now volunteering. I don't think God did that accidentally. We have needs because He has put people into the church and that's part of their development in their faith. Number three, to edify, to encourage, to challenge, to stir one another. And number four, to unify. The Bible tells us right here in verse 13. It says, until all reach unity in faith and knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And lastly, to mature. That word mature, you'll see it in the Bible sometimes. You'll see the word used perfect. Or you'll see the word complete. It's the same word as mature. To mature, to become complete, to become uh, not dependent upon an individual, but to become dependent upon the Spirit of Christ. What does it look like for us to be mature? It looks like we are willing to do what brings Him the most glory as opposed to what brings us the most glory. It means that you seek to serve where needed as opposed to needing to be served. Maturity looks like someone who is stirred by the mission and the vision of the church as opposed to asking, what about me? What am I going to get? What about me? As we look into Revelation, you don't have to turn there, but in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus describes specifically seven different churches. Five of those churches He chastised. He gets on to them pretty harshly. Let's look at those. And let's see why, they got, that, why Jesus got onto them. Number one, there was the church of Ephesus that we see in chapter 2. The same church that was being addressed as we read Ephesians chapter 4 here. The church of Ephesus, what happened to them? Well, they were busy. They had a lot of history. I mean, Paul had been there for a little while. We know from church history that John had been a pastor there. We know that Timothy pastored there. We know that the other six churches that Jesus describes, they were planted out of Ephesus. Ephesus had a tremendous history, but now you fast forward a couple of decades and now they've kind of come to the place where they're just kind of relaxed and they talk about the good old days. They don't really do anything. They come, they show up, they do their perfunctory worship, so to speak, and then they go home and it makes no difference. Matter of fact, he specifically says, you've lost your first love. You no longer engage. You sing about me. You no longer sing to me. You pray, but you don't listen. You show up, but you don't serve. That's what had happened to the church of Ephesus. And he sternly rebukes them. Pergamum had become a worldly church. They had become syncret syncretists in nature. They had begun to adopt different religions. 
into their church, and it all became kind of a conglomeration of different, uh, different beliefs that had nothing to do with the purpose and the mission of their church. Thyatira had become corrupted. People who were immoral, had, had uh, immoral lifestyles, were teaching and leading in the church, but they were unwilling to deal with it. So Jesus gives them that understanding, that label. Sardis had become a dead church. There was barely a pulse. There was no life. There was no passion. Laodicea had lost its vision. It no longer ascribed to the vision that had been given to them. No longer was it about loving God with all that they were while making more and better followers of Christ. No longer was it about receiving, equipping, and sending. It had become self-centered. It had become average. It had become ordinary. You see two churches that Jesus affirms in Revelations 2 and 3. The first was Smyrna. The second was Philadelphia. And what's interesting, they were both, both probably the most economically deprived of the seven churches, and they were constantly being persecuted. It's interesting, these other churches, they didn't say anything about persecution they endured because they just kind of accepted whatever they could. They didn't take a stand for what they believed in. They didn't take a stand for righteousness. They didn't take a stand for the poor and those who had needs. And what does the Bible say? I'll tell you what it says. He rebuked, Jesus rebukes them and He says, I'm going to take away your lampstand. You see, you are to be a light into the world. A city that's on a hill cannot, cannot be hidden when the light is out. And He said, you, I'm going to take away your lampstand. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to remove your light. I'm going to remove your church. How do you think that applies today? Can I tell you something? You know how many churches close every week? Evangelical churches close every week? Twenty-one shut the doors permanently. Three churches every day shut their doors. You know how many churches are planted every week? New churches? Seven. Do the math. We're going minus 14 every week. Every week, God removes a lampstand from a church. Can I tell you this? None of them set out to die. None of them set out and say, we're just going to start existing. You know what happened? Here's what happened. They became Twinkies. It became what's convenient, what's easiest. Don't challenge me. Don't stir me. Church planning, are you kidding me? Giving, are you kidding me? Sacrifice? And they would, matter of fact, what you do is you get mad. When, when the pastor talks about stuff like that or that comes up, just get mad about it and then tell other people. And what you start to do is you start to blow the light out. And Jesus says, you know what? Don't put the label of the church of Christ up there and live a life that is the exact antithesis of who I am. I will remove your lampstand. Hey, that's not an easy word. I don't like to hear that, but it's the truth. That's why only, it's pretty interesting, that's why only two of those churches were commended for their faithfulness. What about us, Rock Point? What are we going to be about? Is it going to be about, is Rock Point going to be the convenient place to go, the happy place to go, the popular place to go? Or are we going to make an impact? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Are we going to make a difference? In the world, you know, we have some great mission points. We have a retirement home. Why do we have have a ministry of the retirement home? Because Jesus specifically said we are to care, care for the elderly. We have some of our folks that are involved in an orphanage called Christ Haven. Why do we do that? Because that's something we're commanded to do as Christians. 
We have a ministry with CCA that we support, and we have people that go and work uh, in the. And it's a clothes and food banquet, or excuse me, pantry over downtown. They also help people to get jobs and get back on their feet. Why do we do that? Because that's what Jesus commanded. When we stop and we start to see those things as a nuisance and we don't want to hear about those things anymore, when we stop wanting to plant churches and expand the kingdom and start new bodies because it's more convenient for us to just come and sit here, then we are in danger of having our lampstand removed. We're in danger of like when I was in Sweden. You know what? 80% of the churches nobody goes to. I'm talking not one person. I'm talking about nobody. Nobody goes to them. They've become museums. They've become places. As a matter of fact, I was asking one of the tour guides as we were going through all these beautiful cathedrals. He goes, I said, you know, um, how many of these churches do they have worship services in? He goes, uh, not very many of them. He said, uh, mostly they're just used for weddings and funerals. And matter of fact, most of them are owned by the state now. Uh, because those churches died. The lampstand was removed. Hey, guys, that can happen to us if we forget the purpose of the church to receive, to equip, and to send. What about you? Are you willing to be a part? Are you looking for Twinkie Church? You know, I got that um, about five years ago when we were planning the church, I got that email uh, from the, the Nigerian email scam where they send you this uh, deal and, you know, we've got $50 million. I'm about to die in six months and send it to me and I'll send you the $50 million to your church. And I got that and I was all excited. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, we're going to get $50 million. How'd they know about us? And, uh, and then I got to thinking about it. How did they know about us? And, you know, and, and first that spirit of greed always kicks in. But you think about it. Okay, this is a church. This is somebody in Africa who's sending $50 million to me in America in Flower Mound. Now think about that logic for just one moment. And you would realize that only somebody who's desperately greedy would fall for that. But a lot of churches did. Matter of fact, millions and millions of dollars have been scammed. And uh, I remember reading that. And I remember a piece of me. I, I thought, I need to go get this checked out. There's a piece of me. I don't want to check it out because somebody will tell me it's not real. You know what I mean? It's almost like that deal somebody telling you the odds are winning the lottery. I don't want to know the odds uh, because the odds are I'll never win. I'll, I have a better chance of getting struck by lightning twice. Uh, and, and I don't want to hear that because I don't want to be stuck, struck by lightning once, uh, much less twice. And, you know, it's kind of like Satan comes in and, and through our greed, he kind of whispers to us, go for it. And it's almost like he's saying, be stupid, be stupid. Do I get money for it? Okay. <laughs> Can I get what I want? Okay. It's almost like we will respond that way. Hey, let me tell you what he's whispering today. Sit there and do nothing. Don't be involved. Don't give. Don't share. Don't help. Be mad when somebody asks you anything. Get upset when something's spoken that doesn't make you feel good. And just... Matter of fact, here's what you need to do. Talk about it. Tear it down. Wherever you were last time, talk about how awful it was. Talk about those other believers. Tear it down. How do you think the lampstand gets removed? It starts when we only desire comfort more than we desire the Spirit of Christ to reign in our lives. And then it progresses to becoming a negative and decisive spirit. And then we start to look up and people start to fall off. And you look up one day and the lampstand's gone. You got a building. Maybe you even have a pastor. Maybe you even have hymnals. But it doesn't mean you have church. What about you? What difference are you willing to make?